I found out the craziest thing this week. Maybe you already knew this, but this was like really kind of crazy to me. I, I found out that Ann Landers and Dear Abby were sisters. What? Why doesn't anybody tell me anything? And on top of this, they were twin sisters. Okay, now some of y'all are going, I don't even know what you're talking about, dear who and Ann. And I, let me just tell you, before there was this thing called the internet, there was this thing called the newspaper, right? And they're still out there today, but not like they used to be in the old days. Because in the old days, like when, when we were young, what, what would happen is every single day, millions and millions and millions of people would wake up to the newspaper on their front porch. And they would grab it and they would start their day off by catching up on the news and sports and all that kind of stuff with a coffee in hand over the good old-fashioned newspaper. And one of the things that people liked to do the most was to kind of keep up with their favorite columnist, right? You see, there were these certain columnists that were syndicated, that were reprinted all over the country in all the different newspapers, and they were called syndicated columnists. It would be like keeping up with your favorite blogger today. Same basic thing, right? You got these certain people, you want to hear their thoughts, and so you would kind of keep up on them by reading their column. Well, two of the most famous columnists uh, two of the most sought-after people were Dear Abby and Ann Landers, who both made a fortune, I mean literally a fortune, by writing personal daily advice to people. People by the thousands and tens of thousands would write them every single week seeking advice about personal issues and personal relationships and how to fix the brokenness in their lives. And, and, and this is where the irony comes into me. This blows my mind. I was shocked to find out that they were sisters. I was blown away to, to find out they were twins sisters, but here's the irony of, of it all. They were some of the most sought-after advice givers in America, and yet, dear Abby and Ann Landers, the, these twin sisters could not get along. Did you know this? For years and years and years and years, they had a family feud going that literally kept them from even speaking to one another. For years on end, they had nothing to do with one another because they couldn't figure out personally how to have their own relationship. Isn't that amazing? Does anybody find this ironic at all? I mean, the, 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 this is an amazing thing because the most sought-after advice givers couldn't figure it out for themselves. And this family grudge was so deep that when, when they died, it went on right until their death. Literally, like, one of them ends up dying, and the other one gets Alzheimer's, and it just carried right on into their death. And then their children, their two daughters, each of the, the, them had a daughter, and they picked up the column after their, mom, their moms had passed away. And guess what? They picked up the grudge just where mom left it off. And this is what blows me away. The very people who are supposed to be the experts on how to get along and how to make a family work and how to make a relationship come alive blew it and couldn't figure it out. Something's wrong here. Does anybody else find that very ironic? I think so. Um, we're in this little series called How to Ruin Your Life in Five Easy Steps. And, um, and we talked about all kinds of different ways, but I think one of the best ways, if you just want to blow it off, you just want to ruin your life, here it is. Ready? Carry a grudge. Just pick it up when you're young and carry it all the way through life. If you want to just live with the, a heaviness of spirit, if you want to just blow the joy of your life, literally carry a grudge. Be bitter. Hold on to the past negative experiences. Let the things um, that hurt you hurt you over and over again. Uh, let it grow into anger and jealousy in your life. Let the past 
govern your future. It's a great way to destroy your life. Carry a grudge. Listen, carrying a grudge is like being stung to death by a single bee. It'll ruin you, friends. It'll ruin you every single time because it's like feeling the pain of hurt over and over and over until you get to the grave. (laughs) Carrying a grudge is like piling a collection of things that will ruin you. It's like piling it up higher and higher in your life. It's it's allowing bitterness to become like a cancer to your soul. It's, It's disappointment that will kill you. It's anger that will kill you. It's stress and and anxiety over things and petty retribution that will absolutely rip your heart out. It's passive aggression and jealousy that will destroy everything that is beautiful in your life. And yet, truth be told, it's very hard to let go of of the little grudges that hold on to our heart, especially when you feel you've been wrong, especially when you feel vindicated, when, when you feel like, like you didn't deserve what was done to you. It's very hard to let go. And so instead of healing, instead of finding long-term peace in our life, we want the temporary satisfaction of somehow making somebody else hurt. But the truth is, friends, who ends up hurting? We do. We carry it along with us, and it ruins our spirit. It ruins us emotionally. It ruins us relationally, and it even ruins us physically. This, this is what a grudge looks like. You know what a grudge looks like? It's like this. This is my daughter's backpack. True story. It's like 50 pounds. She takes it to school. It's crazy. We homeschool. Good she doesn't have to carry it far. <laughs> but this is what a grudge looks like. But see, the thing is, you can't see a grudge. You can't pick it up and carry it and go, oh, yeah, that guy's carrying a grudge. But you know it's there. It's real. It's, it's carried where? In your heart. It's carried in your soul. And the truth is, friends, it gets heavy. I mean, it gets really, really heavy. And ultimately, it keeps us from, from where we want to go in life. And it keeps us from where God wants us to go in this life. That's just the truth. So last week, we started talking about some ways to ruin your life, and our last couple of weeks, and we landed in Genesis 3 last week. Anybody remember this? Genesis 3, and what did we learn in Genesis 3? We learned that the woman caused all the problems. Amen. <laughs> Just kidding, right? But, but we learned how that this idea of self-responsibility is so important in our life. And we learned that irresponsibility can ruin a life very fast. Genesis chapter 3, y'all remember that? Genesis chapter 3, we talked about the blame game, right? And, and how shifting the blame will ultimately ruin who we are. That, that playing dumb and kind of going, I have no idea how I got where I am in this life. I have no idea where these problems came from. That will destroy you. Genesis chapter 3. Well, what's amazing is the very next chapter, there's another key element to ruining your life. I mean, it just kind of lays it all out there for everybody to see. And so um, if you've got a Bible or a smartphone, I would love for you to turn over to Genesis chapter 4. Find that, Genesis chapter 4. And, and it's amazing. Listen to this. This is amazing. We learn how quickly we go from paradise to paradise lost. It's amazing how quickly we go from, from a, a life that is good and a life that is with God to flat-out murder. 
to flat-out murder. Genesis chapter 4, follow along if you would. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and, and you know what knew his wife meant, right? Uh, it means that she conceived and bore a son. He, she bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's sort of like a hillbilly expression. I got me a man. I always thought that was funny in the scriptures, right? Uh, Verse two, it says, and again, she bore another son, a brother named Abel. Now, Abel was the keeper of the sheep. That means he was a herdsman. He did the, the, the cattle ranching kind of a thing, right? And Cain was the worker of the ground. He was a farmer. Verse three, listen to this. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering. The fruit, listen, an offering from the fruit of the ground. Verse four, and Abel, who was the herdsman, he brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. And the Lord had what? Regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so what is it saying? In other words, it's the same, God loves barbecue way more than a veggie stir fry. Amen. Amen. No, listen, there's so much more going on here, something so much deeper than what's going on here. It has little to do, listen, little to do with the offering itself. Why, friends? Because from the very beginning of the God-man relationship, where has God always looked? On the outside? No, where? On the inside. On the heart of a man or the heart of a woman. That's where God looks. And he sees through the facades of our life. This has nothing to do with what they brought. It has everything to do with how they brought it to him. And so we're going to learn this. Check this out, what happens next. Um, Verse verse 5, it says, So so Cain, because God had no regard for his offering, it says, So Cain was very angry, and he fell on his face. Right? The Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? And why has your face fallen? And Cain wasn't just bummed out that God liked Abel's offering better than his. He was flat out jealous of his brother. Can you see this? He was angry at his brother. He was angry at God and and he became jealous and it started to rage within him. And bitterness, listen, bitterness and resentment start to fill his heart. And God warns him. And God warns him. He says, check the inside. Pause. He warns us, check what's going on in here. Look deep about what's going on in here and make sure you're right before your maker. This is what he says. So God says to him, if you do well, you will be accepted. What was he saying, friends? In other words, he says it has nothing to do with meat or vegetables. This has everything to do with your heart, Cain. And, if you, and you will do well if you get your heart right before me. Cain, if you adjust what's going on in your soul, everything will be okay. But Cain didn't make that adjustment. What does it say? And if you do well, it says, uh, and it, uh, you'll, it'll go well for you. But, but if you do not do well, listen, sin is crouching at the door. Look at this picture that God paints for Cain. So sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And God looks at Cain and says, Cain, I'm going to warn you, don't carry a grudge. It's sitting right at the door of your life. It's at your heart right now, and it will grow and grow and grow inside of you until you can no longer contain it. It will rule over you if you're not careful. So you got to figure out, Cain, how to change your heart. But Cain couldn't seem to shake it, could he? 
You know the rest of the story. He, he's carrying it around with him and eventually it causes him to become something that he never wanted to become. To do something that he never wanted to do, I'm sure. You know the story, verse 8, it says this. So Cain spoke to his brother Abel and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. And there it is, right there. The first murder in human history recorded. The first murder. Wow. Listen, friends, and where did it come from? It came from a heart that was filled with a grudge. It came from a heart that was filled with bitterness. It came from a heart that was filled with resentment. It came from a heart that let these things rule and they could not be changed. So friends, there's a massive warning. Look what happens to, to Cain. Look at what it costs Cain. This is incredible. Um, it says this, it says, verse 9, Then the Lord says to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, um, I, I, and Cain replies, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And look again what it costs him. It says, And now you are cursed from the ground, Cain, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Can you see the word picture God's painting here? When you work that ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer throughout the earth. You ever hear that expression? You're nursing a grudge? Anybody? When you nurse something, what do you do? You help it come back to life. You keep it alive. You keep it growing. You, you, you feed it in order to make you strong, right? That's what you do. <clears throat> Things heavy, I'm telling you. Right now, this is crazy. We good? Oh, okay. But what do we do when we nurse something? We keep it alive. We just keep feeding it. And when we nurse a grudge, what do we do? We feed it from our own perspective. We feed it our own anger. We feed it our own disappointment. And we keep telling ourselves, we're right, we're right, they're wrong, they're wrong, we're right, we're right, they're wrong, they're wrong. And it just grows and grows and grows. You feel like, like when you nurse a grudge, you feel you have the right to stay bitter. And that was Cain, friends. No sense of guilt, no sense of remorse. In his mind, he was absolutely justified in taking the life of his brother. He was saying, Abel had it coming to him. Friends, let's just be honest for a second. You can justify absolutely anything in your life when you're bitter, can't you? Come on. You can justify any of our absurd behavior when we're mad, when we think somebody else has it coming. We do things that we would never do if we were rational in our thought process at that moment. But we let it take over us like a cancer to the soul. It's, this is the way it works in my life, I'll admit it. She deserves it. You have no idea what she did to me. He deserves it. You have no idea how he treated me. You have no idea what this relationship has cost me. This is what we do. This is what I do. And, and over time, friends, listen, if we take this perspective, here's what happens to us every single time. This is the mark of a humanity. Listen, when we have this attitude that grows inside of us, if we let this bitterness rage inside of us, something happens because at one point we looked at a husband, we looked at a wife, we looked at a child, we looked at a mom, we looked at a dad, we looked at a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, a, a business partner. We looked at these people with love and admiration. We wanted to be right with them. But when, when we carry a grudge, when we let this thing uh, called bitterness and resentment grow inside of us, all of a sudden, we, st we, we steal that from them. We no longer want to be generous. We no longer want to be good. We no longer want to be filled with joy. And friends, if we let it brew inside of us long enough, here's what happens. 
we lose our humanity. We really do. We become no better than the animal because we lose our love and compassion. We lose our joy and contentment. And the goodness that God placed inside of us is choked right out of us. Have, have you guys seen this in humanity? Is it just me? Have you seen this before? Where, where you see a relationship that at one point you look at it and you marvel. It's so good and so healthy and so un, alive. And, and then you come back and cycle back around a couple years later and, and you just see it broken and a mess. Anybody ever see that before? Come on, anybody? Where you saw one that was so alive and now it's so broken. Friends, how does this happen? It happens when we let it grow inside of us. When we keep carrying the doggone thing around. And let me tell you something, friends. There is another way. There is another way to live. I'm guessing every single person in this room has somewhere in your family mix, in your life mix, in your relational mix, there is a brokenness and there is a bitterness and, and, and it does not have to be that way. There is another way to live. You see, friends, God the Father sent Jesus, his son, into this world to change how we do life with people. He, he sees from the very beginning of time how humanity starts with this bitterness and they carry it around from the earliest times of life until the time they get into their grave. And he says, that has to change. And I don't know what you think of Jesus. That's up to you. You have to wrestle with that. But I can tell you what I see Jesus and what I see in Jesus and why he came. Jesus came to heal the brokenness of humanity, to teach us how to do relationships, to teach us how to love one another. This is how he came and why he came, friends. Um, there's an amazing story that occurs between Jesus and, and one of his closest followers, a man named Peter. And it's an amazing story, and we don't know all the details behind it, but all we can figure out from this little story is that is that somebody in some way or somehow must have hurt Peter because he comes to Jesus one day and he says to, to, to Jesus, he says, all right, listen, how long do I have to take this? How many times do I have to take this guy doing this to me? He goes, how many times do I have to what? Forgive this guy. So what's he saying? He's saying, first of all, I know God wants me to forgive somewhere in the mix, but how often do I have to do this? before I'm justified with my anger, before I'm justified carrying the grudge around. And so Peter comes to Jesus and he says, listen, I'm not the guilty party. The other guy's the guilty party. This isn't my fault. He should be at least made to, to somehow initiate it. And so Peter says, how many times should I forgive? And then he goes crazy and goes, should I forgive seven times? Seven times. And I don't know what Peter was expecting, but I'm thinking Peter was expecting Jesus to go, oh, Wow. Very impressive. Seven times, very impressive. Way more than I could do. Way more. And I don't know what the answer he was expecting, but that was not the answer Jesus gave him. Look at how it's recorded in Matthew chapter 18, verse 22. Look at this, it's amazing. It says, Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times. No, 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 forget the seven-time thing. No, 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 no. Seventy-seven times. Seventy-seven times, that's how often. 
Now, some of y'all are looking at this and you're going, I've heard that 70 times 7 type of thing, that 77 thing. And it's interesting because in this little verse, it kind of reads both ways depending on what version you're reading. It, it, sometimes it says 77 times and other times it says Seven times 70 or 70 times seven, right? Have you all seen this before? Have you heard this little phrase? And what's interesting is people go, well, I don't quite get that. Well, what's interesting is that from the very ancient of times, the mathematical answer doesn't matter. This isn't a matter of math. This isn't a matter of getting the number right. So the the translations, there there was no exact translation from the original Greeks to to the English that we read because it wasn't meant to be a math formula. It was meant to be... Um, uh, the point of the story was meant to be that you forgive as often as you need to forgive. It's like when I tell my kids, how many times have I told you? Have I told you a million times? Kids go, no, no, I think it was like 14, right? Right? But the point is not the million times. The point is I've told you more times than I could possibly remember, possibly count. And so the scripture reads, how many times? Seven? Mm-mm. No, 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 not seven. 70 times seven. A whole bunch more than you can possibly count. Now, follow me on this. Um, this is really interesting to me. This even goes deeper than this because where does Jesus even get this expression 70 times 7 or 77? You ever think about this? Where did, where did, he, did he just reach out there and pull this out of thin air and go, hey, I'm just making this up. I just ought to do a little play on words. No, no, no. This whole 7 thing is very, very purposeful. Jesus knew the Old Testament forward and backwards, and he chooses that number very deliberately. Jesus is doing a fabulous and a beautiful thing here. And let me just show you. Uh, We just read the story of Cain, right? The story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. And Jesus reaches way back to the very beginning of Scripture. And he talks about how mankind is always going to struggle with this thing called forgiveness, with carrying a grudge. And he reaches way back to the beginning. So listen, after God kicks Cain out, and he calls him a wanderer. Listen to Cain's response. Very interesting. Now we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Very interesting. Listen. He says, Cain says to the Lord God, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Remember, God says you're going to have to work real hard now, and you're going to have to go out of the garden. You're going to be a wanderer in the earth and all that. He says, behold, you have driven me today from the ground, which means like the ground is like the land of Eden, the good ground, the, the fertile ground, the ground where I'm protected. He says, you've driven me from that ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will what? Kill me. So there must have been other people at this time, which is interesting, a little side note. Something else is going on. There's broken relationships in humanity already because he's worried about what? being killed by somebody else. And then it says, and then it says this, verse 15, so important. Then the Lord God says to him, not so. He says, I'm going to protect you, Cain, even though you did wrong, even though you broke the covenant with me. He says this, not so with you. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him. How many times? Sevenfold. Don't miss that. Seven times. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone found should atta- uh, anyone who found him should attack him. Verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And this idea of the mark of Cain has become symbolic with the grace given to a man who was not deserving of it. Pause. Any among us? Who have received the grace that was undeserved? Anybody? 
And you have been marked like Cain. Grace that you did not deserve. And God says, if anybody comes against him, I'm going to protect him. I'm going to avenge him. I'm going to take care of him. You don't have to carry that burden anymore. I'll take care of you. Even though you broke the covenant. Even though you broke the relationship. But follow me. Here's where Jesus does something absolutely amazing. Cain ends up having a bunch of kids, right? And if you were to track through, he has a grandson or a great-grandson, I think it is, named Lamech. And Lamech was not a good man. Lamech ends up killing someone also, just like his granddaddy Cain. It must kind of go from father to son, right? And so Cain, uh, his granddaddy was given grace seven times over, right? He was protected by God seven times over. And, and what would happen was this. When, when Lamech kills somebody, he does something crazy. He, not like Cain who pleaded for God's mercy, he brags about it. The scripture records that he goes to, to one of his wives and he says, he says to her, he says, I've killed a man. Oh, and he deserved it. Oh, and he got what was coming to him. And if anybody tries to mess with, with me because of this, because of murdering him, God will avenge me, not like my granddaddy seven times over. He will pay, I will make him pay 70 times seven. And so in the ancient world, it became known as the law of Lamech. Don't mess with Lamech because Lamech will avenge you. As a matter of fact, he gathers his wife and he brags about this and he says, I'll take out, he goes, I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to be one of these guys who lays it down. I'm going to avenge it. I'm going to take it up for myself. I'm going to carry a grudge until the day I die. And everybody around me is going to pay, not seven times, but 70 Seven times. And listen to this. Jesus comes along. And, he, and these people know their Old Testament, not like us. And he takes that and he turns the law of Lamech around. This number he grabs, 77 or 7 times 7, it's not a random number. He goes back to the very beginning where God gave grace and said, I'll avenge sevenfold. Peter claimed that and goes, hey, I got, you know, seven times I've ran out of grace. And he turns the law of Lamech completely around. And he says, not seven, but 70 times seven. He says to Peter, Peter, if you want, you can go after the law of Lamech. You can run after it and you can avenge it and you can carry this stupid thing around. You can carry it like a stone on your shoulder. You can just haul this thing around through your whole life and you can carry a grudge and you can think you're better than everybody else and you can think that you didn't deserve it and it was their fault and you may even be right in all that, but you can't follow me if you're going to do that. You can't follow me if that's the way you're going to live. Because the law of Lamech is done. We're going to reverse that. And now grace is going to reign. Seventy times seven. More than you can even count. And so Jesus says, Peter, stop carrying it. Put it down. Once and for all. Stop hauling that thing around. He says, if you want to follow me, put down the stone. Put down the backpack. Put down the weight. Because you can't do both. You can't have the law of Lamech and the law of grace in your life. They don't go together. Now, Jesus comes after this, and, and it's amazing how he tries to re-illustrate this, 
this teaching of forgiveness, he comes to Peter with a story, and it's a story that maybe some of you are familiar with. Um, he, he begins to tell a story about a man who amassed a ton of debt in his life. Now, this would never happen in any of our lives. We would never be over our head in debt, but this man was over his head in debt, and, and it says that the debt was insurmountable. It was an incredible amount of debt. And, and when Jesus tells a story, he introduces us that there is this debt master, this household master, this like CEO, and this servant man, this employee sort of a man, had, had been doing something to amass this debt to the owner of this house. And what's amazing is we're going to learn that the, that the master, the CEO, literally washes the debt completely away. I mean, just wipes it all out clean, free of charge. It's an amazing thing. But we have to understand, in order to understand this story, you have to understand that the debt we're talking about was so extraordinary that most scholars would put the number at more than the average retribution that Israel would have to pay to Rome every single year as a nation. So much so that no individual could possibly pay this back on their own. And so it had buried this guy. And so this master finds out that this servant uh, was way in debt, and he calls him in. And guess what the servant does? He falls at the feet of this master, and he literally begs for forgiveness. He begs to, for more time. He begs to, kind of like some of us do with the credit card company, just give me another month. I'll work it out, right? But he was begging for that freedom from his master, for that forgiveness from his master, and then the master does something so extraordinary. It just blows the minds of the hearers of Jesus. Remember, this debt is more than Israel pays to Rome every single year. And he says that the master looks at him and literally forgives it. And says, I'm not going to send you to jail. I'm not going to send you to where there's torture. I'm not going to take your whole livelihood and your family away from you. I'm going to let you go free. Now, one of the other things that we have to understand if we're going to get the full meaning of this story is that in a situation like this, do you realize that the debt just doesn't disappear? Do you realize this? This isn't like the federal government, right? The debt just doesn't go away. The debt has to be accounted for and paid for. And so who in this story pays the debt? The master, the CEO, and friends, listen, the CEO is God in this story. He's the master. He's the one who looks at you and looks at me and sees all the junk of our life. And he literally says, gone, disappeared, forgiven. You don't have to carry it anymore. So the story goes on, though, that this man is released and he goes away and he's skipping and he's jumping around. He's probably celebrating. And he runs into another guy who owed him just some pocket change, literally just like a day's wage. And now you would figure, wouldn't you, that the guy who's been forgiven such a mountain of debt would be able to go out and forgive somebody else a couple bucks? Anybody? You'd figure that, right? Well, the Scripture records that Jesus in his storytelling, he says, no, 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 but they didn't have it this way. The guy who was forgiven so much goes out and finds the guy who owes him some money, and he puts his hands around his neck and literally begins to wring his neck and says, I demand of you, give me what you owe me or I'm going to send you to jail. I'm going to take you away from your wife and kids. I'm going to, I'm going to take everything from you. Now, what's interesting is the master hears about this. And so he calls for this servant to be brought back in. And how do you think it goes this time for him? Not very well. This master says, after all I've done to you and for you, after the mercy and the grace I've given you, reverse the law of Lamech to you. 
And you did what? You demanded what? How could you not forgive? How could you not show the same grace that I've shown you? And listen to this. This will blow you away. Jesus says to him, this is how, Jesus says to us, excuse me, he says, this is how my Father in heaven will treat each of you unless you can forgive your brother from your heart. (laughs) Listen, let that sit up there for a minute. Think about that. How can God forgive you when you carry this? He says, what right do you have to hold on to a grudge so tight? What right do you have to not forgive when God has been so gracious to you? And he warns us, friends. He, he, he calls us into account. Let me tell you something, friends. My forgiveness, it came through a cross. Listen, my forgiveness, it, it's almost impossible to think that God could forgive me. And I don't know about you, but he does. And, and I think the only way that I can hold on to this for all of my life is when I forget the cost that it costs God to forgive me. That's the only way. And so I think at the end of the day, friends, the only place for this is right there at the foot of a cross. Friends, we can't forget the price he paid for our forgiveness. He has done for us so much. And how dare we walk through life as if we are in charge of life? Listen, and I get it. At the end of the day, um, we have to understand something. All wrong deeds will be accounted for. Do you realize that? All wrong deeds ever done to you or by you will be accounted for. The scripture promises that. It says at the end of our life, God will bring all things into an account. He, he says it this way. He says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Anybody ever hear that? Vengeance is mine. And what's he saying by that? He's saying it's not yours, and it's not yours, and it's not mine. It's God's. Let me be honest with you. Um, there is no way in my life that I could be fair enough to take out vengeance on somebody else. There's no way I'm good enough, wise enough, loving enough, just enough, to take out vengeance on anybody else. He says it's mine to avenge. It's mine to hold um, people into an account. You know, it's interesting. uh, I read this little study, and I'll be real quick with this, that uh, they asked all these people, both churchgoers and non-churchgoers, they asked them, um, do you think God forgives your sin, all of your sin? And uh, some 75, 80% said, absolutely, yes, God forgives all of my sin. But then they asked uh, another question, do they, does God forgive other people's sin? 
Only 50% replied yes at that point. Yeah, yeah. I think that's interesting. And then it, and then it went down even further. 50% said that, um, that they had forgiven others, but only 43% said that they've ever asked for forgiveness from somebody else. You see, we expect forgiveness from other people. We expect it from God. But somehow we won't give it to somebody else. And Jesus says this is a real spiritual delusion. Jesus said this is a risk that you should not be willing to take. What did he say? He says, if you don't forgive, your Father in heaven cannot forgive you. Don't forget what it costs God to forgive you. Don't forget, friends. Um, I, I just want to end with this real short story. I just want to read something to you. I read it from John Ortberg's book called Life is Short. Such a good little book. John's one of my favorite writers, and, and uh, he writes this. I'm just going to read this to you, and we'll just kind of close it out with this. It says, Nancy and I have a friend named Sue whose relationship with her mom was very difficult. Some, sometimes it was an all-out war between the two of them. About the best it ever was was a ceasefire. She never got a compliment from her mom ever. She was quite an attractive lady, but her mom had never told her, not even once, that she was pretty. About the only way that they could relate to each other was to inflict pain on each other's life. In a family, you know how to inflict pain on the very people you love, don't you? Sue ended up in a state where... um, People from troubled, dysfunctional, wacko families often find themselves. You care to guess what state that is? He writes California. <laughs> uh, she, she entered the profession which uh, these, general, uh, these people generally enter. You know what profession? He says, she became a psychologist. <laughs> uh, she avoided going home like the plague. When she did, she tried to stay with her brother to stay away from her mom. Uh, one day she got a call, though. Her mom had developed a degenerative muscular disease and probably would not last a very long time. She, stated, she, excuse me, she started to pray, God, do something. Do something to my mom's body or, or my mom's heart or my heart, but just use this. Do something. She and her mom both believed in God. Her, her mom went downhill quite rapidly. Sue got another call that the end was not far, and so she flew home. They kept like, they, they kept like a family vigil outside of her bedroom for several days, but her, mom survived the, but her mom survived the crisis. Everybody was exhausted. They all went home except for Sue, who decided to stay another day or two. Well, she couldn't sleep that night when everybody had gone home, and I'll never forget her telling me the story. So John writes this. She got up in the middle of the night and went to her mother's room and sat down by the side of her mom's bed. In an act of moving toward her mom, something happened in her. Something real hard in her heart started to melt. She found herself saying words that she never thought she would ever hear herself say. She said, I'm sorry, Mom. I'm just so sorry. She had done a lot of things that she regretted, She had been hurt, but she also had inflicted hurt. I'm sorry, she kept repeating to her mom. She said, I know it wasn't easy to raise me, mom. And then her mom, who could barely speak, interrupted her and said, me too. I'm sorry. I'm the one who should be sorry, Sue. Sue said for the first time since she was a little girl, her heart was flooded with love for her mom. She had been afraid that, that um, she had been afraid that she'd be cold toward her mom until the very, very end. She hadn't touched her mom for years and years and years. But now in this moment, she could do nothing but touch her mom. 
She held her mom's hand. She created her mom's head in her arms. She stroked her hair. She hugged her. She couldn't let go. She just couldn't stop touching her mom. She laid down in the bed next to her mom. She hadn't done that for over 35 years. I love you, mom. I really do. I really, really do. I was so afraid that you were going to die without knowing that I love you. I was so afraid that you were going to die without ever hearing those words from me. I love you. Her mom said, I bet you were afraid of the same thing as well. Her mom was having trouble speaking at this point. And so Sue took a piece of paper and she started to write things down. She wrote a single word for Sue. The mom wrote a single word for Sue to read and then pointed it to her daughter. The word was pretty. Pretty. Sue said, the nurse told me, um, I look a lot like you, mom. She found herself with thoughts and feelings she wanted to express to her mom, and she didn't even know that she had inside of her. She was about uh, 40 years old at this point and had not gotten married yet. So she tells her mom, I hope to have given you a grandchild. I'm sorry I couldn't do that. Her mom wrote down, yeah, but you gave me a daughter. They just stayed up all night talking to one another, touched all night long, hugged, laid next to each other. That was the last time that Sue would see her mom. It was her mom's last night on earth, her last but very best night on earth. A prison door was unlocked and two frozen bitter hearts melted and two stones got laid down at the foot of the cross. Two human beings who lived as enemies became mother and daughter. Friends, I, I want to tell you something. Um, there is no miracle like the miracle of forgiveness. There is no miracle like the miracle of forgiveness when God forgives you or when you forgive the person that's hurt you, who's walked on you, who's broken your soul. There is no miracle and there is no avenue greater for getting a fresh breath of God's spirit in your life as when you forgive because your father forgives and you become like God when you forgive. When you give grace, you become like God. You don't become God, but his spirit moves in you and through you in ways that you never thought possible. And so I'm not sure what you do with this. All I know is if you want to ruin your life, if you want to waste your days, just keep carrying it. Just keep carrying it. Father, we come be before you and uh, we, we don't quite understand how to forgive or how to even let it down sometimes. But, but God, you forgive us in whatever measure you, you, you have used on us, help us to use on somebody else. You have been more than good to me. So God, help us to put down the bag, to put down the stone, Help us to move forward and let it go and to become what you want us to become. God, help us to walk in your grace and your mercy. Help us to receive it 
and to give it. In Jesus' name, God's people say, amen.